Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. When you were growing up, there's a pretty good chance that you read ghost-written books among the first books that you read. At least for some, somebody my age, I mean, I grew up reading the Hardy Boy books. In fact, I read all 43 of the extant Hardy Boy books at that time. But they were all attributed to, to an author who literally did not exist, and it was kind of piecework that was jobbed out on a contract basis. Same thing for Nancy Drew. A little bit later in the process, uh, R.L. Stein did not write all the Goosebumps books. Uh, and ghostwriting is sort of there. It's always been there. It's, um, as I said before the news, I mean, Alex Haley famously wrote the autobiography of Malcolm X. Um, ghostwriting is, in many ways, a necessary and honorable tradition, as long as the ghost is uh, amply, comp- or at least aptly, uh, compensated. So we're going to talk about that today. We'll talk about it in the world of literature. We'll talk about it also a little bit in the world of politics and speech writing. And we'll also talk about it in the world of hip-hop, where it is, in fact, a very controversial uh, issue. Hip-hop being such a personal uh, narrative style, at least for an awful lot of rap artists. Uh, So uh, here we go. And we're going to begin with uh, Lisa Dickey, a book collaborator, a ghostwriter for 20 books, nine of which became New York Times bestsellers. Buzz's intercom. Get me Lisa Dickey. Uh, she's the author of Bears in the Streets, Three Journeys Across a Changing Russia. She's a story a teller on stage appearing at the Moth Grand Slam, among others. But yes, today we are going to very specifically talk to Lisa Dickey about uh, her life as a ghostwriter. So welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. So you're uh, obviously also a very talented storyteller. The problem is you can't tell too many stories about ghostwriting, right? The whole idea is you can't really tell stories about what it was like to collaborate. I mean, we know some of the people you've collaborated with, but it, it kind of stops there. Yeah, it's very much, I mean, as you can imagine, discretion is kind of the coin of the realm in this business. Um, you know, you, you talk to a lot of people, they tell you a lot of things, and, you know, it just goes into the vault. Right. So, I mean, most recently, and perhaps uh, notably, uh, not most recently, but very notably, uh, you are the ghostwriter uh, on Where the Light Enters by Jill Biden. That's not a concealed fact uh, at all. I mean, well, actually, and let me just sort of pause for one second. Yes, yes. And and this is a really important point to make, um, because ghostwriting is such a funny term. I think when people hear it, they're what what comes to mind is they think that the person literally wrote every word mm. and on sometimes that is what a ghostwriter does and many many times it's not so it's actually not really um correct to say that i was the ghostwriter for that book i was uh i uh, gave some assistance mm-hmm. um to the author of that book but it's very very important um to not i mean that's why in the intro for me it says uh book collaborator and mm-hmm. ghostwriter there's also terms like book doctor and we can get more into that later but i just want to sort of say at the right. outside at the outset that uh, i don't want there to be any implication that that was what um happened there because it's i do think it's very important to be clear about that 
Right. So, and yeah, there are other terms. In fact, when we get to the Dan Gerstein part of the show, uh, a term that they're using a lot on Gotham Ghostwriters is developmental editor, what I guess, which I guess is <laughs> right, a, yeah. a, another yeah. thing. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, well, apologies uh, for to uh, Dr. Jill Biden for uh, using Ghostwriter. But I guess what I really want to know is, I mean, it seems to me if you're going to work with somebody, whether it's Jill Biden or somebody else, it, it's a long term relationship a lot of the time. And there has to be a lot of trust. Uh, there has to be, I would assume, good chemistry. How do you uh, and, um, and and one of your clients uh, or collaborators, how do you guys figure out whether or not this can work? You know, it's funny. Um, and I, I will say this, you know, this is probably pretty obvious, but I, every time I'm going to talk about this, I'm going to talk just in a general sense. I'm not talking about yes. anybody specifically. So you've mentioned one of my books. There's obviously 19 other ones, um, collaborations. But the, the funny thing is, is when I first interview with somebody about potentially working with them, it's almost like you're going on a blind date in a way, you know, like, cause you really do want to say, you mentioned chemistry and that's really true. You just want to make sure that there's a comfort level there that the person feels like, you know, there's a, there's a level of communication that's going to work because it's, it's really important to have just that level of comfort and that, that level of being able to talk to each other and, and, and feel that comfort. So I always feel like going in, you know, if I'm doing an interview with a person, even if it's a really famous person, I never sort of go in thinking I want to win this job because either there's a there there or there's not you know what i mean kind of like a kind of like a blind date yeah, no, totally. So, yeah, you said uh, there are lots of others. Uh, some of the other uh, collaborators or collaborations would include Christopher Wiley, Herbie Hancock, um, Sissy Houston, Gavin Newsom, uh, Kara Swisher. Uh, it's it's all over the map uh, here. So, yeah. Um, so, yes. So in a generic way, not talking about any of those people or any of the other people involved in these 20 books in particular, I would imagine... Well, actually, I have a friend who does do some ghostwriting or some collaborating or whatever. Uh, and so this question is based on a little bit of knowledge. Is there some are there some instances where you, you might have somebody who just like you have to talk to them to get the kind of information that you might need to either make a clarification or an addition or work on a, a chapter that's underdeveloped? And and I, I'm, I don't know, sometimes is it hard to motivate people when, once they sort of feel like you're on the job? Do they sort of think, well, <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know, she's got that under control. I don't have to think about this anymore. You know, it's funny. I've I've certainly heard of that with other ghostwriters where, you know, sort of infamous cases where a person's like, oh, I've never even read it. And now that it's come out, I disagree with it. You know, like this, you'll, you'll hear about these cases. In literally every single one of mine, people have been extremely involved. They've been very you know, uh, you know, from every level, uh, you know, wanting to be, you know, it's their book and they care about it. And, uh, you know, maybe I've just been lucky or maybe it's something that I can sort of sniff out a little bit at the beginning if the person doesn't seem that sort of interested in, in really being that involved. Um, I will say, you know, I, I get a lot more requests than, than I actually do, meaning I turn down a lot more people than I actually work with. Um, and so, uh, you know, I've been very fortunate to be able to sort of gauge whether a person is really serious about wanting to be involved or wanting to um, really put themselves into it, because invariably it's a better book. The more time that you can get with a person, the better the better the book is going to be. Right. I think Charles Barkley has been very upfront about the fact that he, that <laughs> right, he, has, yeah. he has not He's read. He's kind of a famous one, right? It's yes. hilarious. He's so open about it. It's very funny. He has not read any number of his own books. Um, <laughs> 
you know, which is fine. That's you know, yeah. uh, that's yeah. that's Sir, that is Sir Charles. Well, that's exactly what we would want him to that's be. Right. Well, yeah. so when Betsy Kaplan first proposed that we do the show, my mind, because I understand absolutely everything uh, through the movies, um, went to the movie, uh, The Ghost Rider. Uh, so let's hear a little clip from that. You're hearing uh, Ewan McGregor, who is a ghost writer. Jim Belushi uh, is the publishing executive. Uh, you're also, you'll also hear um, his uh, the ghostwriter's agent talking about uh, this project. Perhaps you can enlighten us and tell us what exactly you're going to bring to this project. Nothing. <laughs> it's, no, I'm not going to pretend to be someone I'm not. You, you have my CV. His last effort was the autobiography of a magician. I came, I soared, I conquered. Yeah, and it went straight to number one. So. After you turned it down, Roy. Look, uh, I don't read political memoirs. Who does? And I gather you, you spent $10 million in this book. Well, how, how much of that are you going to see back? Two? Three? It's bad news for your shareholders. And it's worse news for your client, Mr. Kroll. Adam Lang, he wants a place in history, not in the remainder tables. Oh, please. It's because I know nothing about politics that I'll ask the questions that get right to the heart of who Adam Lang is. Well, I would imagine you have any number of reactions uh, to this. Well, actually, just give us any number of reactions to this. <laughs> well, it's funny, you know, the very the very first bit that you played, you know, was was him basically saying, you know, what what are you bring to the table? Nothing, and that made me laugh because you know I, I've done the books that I've done have been on just such a huge range of things from you know jazz music to politics to you know. Uh, venture capitalism to cybercrime and all of these things. And I'm obviously not an expert in all of these things. I would have to be the world's greatest polymath to be an expert in these things. But the people I'm working with are the experts in these things. So it's it's funny because I think, you know, it's not important for me to have a master's degree in all of these things. What's important for me is to be able to go into a room, talk to a person, understand and synthesize their incredible vast amount of knowledge for a readership that that wants to know it and understand it. Um, so that part kind of made me laugh. The other thing about that movie that's so fun is like, you know, of course, when it came out, you know, every ghostwriter I know was like, oh, yeah, that's what my life is like, definitely. Like, I'm really going to these, like, beautiful locales and then, like, having to chase, you know, run around and not be murdered every every millisecond. So <laughs> it, was, mm-hmm. it was a fun it was a fun movie to watch. Um, but anyway, yeah, that that part of it is is really true. It's you're basically what if you're doing this correctly, in my opinion, you're basically a vessel for that person. You are helping that person to do something, which is to get their words on a page in a book length form, um, you know, because everybody can express themselves. But writing a book is a different thing. And so my specific skill set is helping to get it in, in book length form, which is not that easy a thing to do if you've not done it before. Right. If you're a writer, which I have been for most of my life. Just regular people come up to you all the time. I'm sure this happens to you even more. And parties and say, I've got this great idea for a book, but I'm just not really a writer. I can't really sit down to write it. And they, they want you to just sort of lunge at them and say, oh, please let me write this. All uh, but, the time. <laughs> all the time. Yes. But the truth is, if their name isn't Herbie Hancock, you know, it's, just, it's probably not even really worth having this conversation. You know, write your own damn book. Um, yeah. So are there, so we're doing a show about uh, Tom Stoppard uh, next week. So Stoppard famously, 
actually, you know, has been a script doctor, which is different, but similar. Uh, and in some instances, he has, he has chosen to receive no credit, um, at least no screen credit for the, the third Indiana Jones movie. He's believed because he had a deal that was based on gross receipts to have received a million dollars for doing some, some, wow. some work. But, Sir Tom just felt like, you know, wasn't maybe necessarily the kind of thing that he wanted any credit for. Is yeah. that is that ever the case for you? Would you always like to have the most visible credit, like be right there <laughs> on the on the front jacket? Or, or I don't know, do you have sort of a different continuum of feelings about that? I, mean, I think for every ghostwriter, there's a there's a, you know, a, there's a continuum. There's all kinds of different um, situations that arise, there's different levels of involvement that you have and things that you do. And every case is different. You know, that's, that's pretty much what I could say about that. But I love, I love the point you make about Tom Stoppard and doing, you know, doing this script doctoring, because another funny thing is that, you know, there's people have a certain thing in their head about, oh, ghostwriting a book. And what does that mean? And what does that imply about what kind of writer you are, what kind of person you are, where as you know, there are tons and tons and tons of examples of people doing ghostwriting in all kinds of things, right? Like communication staffs write op-eds for CEOs and speechwriters write speeches for politicians and comics who have these like Netflix specials and, you know, the comics who stand up and do some of these really big, like the White House Correspondents Dinner, they have staffs of people that help them with their jokes, you know? So it's something where, you know, if, if you have a very specific skill that is needed, in my case, it's writing books, it makes ab absolute sense to hire somebody to help you do it. And it's just a, you know, it's just, it, it makes sense on both sides. And for me, I just sort of fell into this in a way of, you know, I was working as a journalist actually. And then a friend of mine wanted to write a book and she wasn't sure how to do long form. And she said, can you help me out? And it turned out, oh, actually I know how to do this. I don't know why I know how to do this, but I know how to do this. And I liked it better than doing short form like magazines or essays or, you know, news reporting or anything like that. So there's different types of writing. And then, you know, I just happened to find something that I was able to do and able to channel sort of as a vessel for other people's voices, um, which again is kind of a weird, <laughs> sort of a weird thing to be able to do. Um, but I'm glad I discovered that I could do it, so. Right, I, I think also, you know, the thing that kind of jumped when we played that ghost writer clip, the thing that jumped out to me is the thing that Ian McEwan says at the end, which is that because he's not a political person, he'll ask different questions. He'll sort of go after different material. And we kind of know where that's that's headed in terms of the movie. But I, I think there might be a grain of truth there that, you know, uh, probably if you think you know a lot about jazz, you shouldn't be Herbie Hancock's collaborator. Exactly. Be go ahead. Exactly. Elaborate. Elaborate yeah, on that. No, that's exactly right. Like you, you look, if if. If let's say her, we'll take Herbie as an example, I, I, I love Herbie. He's if he, but if he's writing a book for specifically for people who know a whole lot about jazz and this is increasing their knowledge, I am not the person probably to do that. If he wants to write a book that sort of will explain to the layperson, you know, what, what is you know how did he do what he did, then I'm the right person for that because I don't necessarily know a whole lot about that, right? So for all of these things, all of these various. Um, topics that I'm not an expert in, I can say, hey, you know what, that makes sense to you because you've been steeped in this for 30 years. But I'm telling you right now that if I don't get it, a reader's not going to get it. And so let's figure out a way to explain this in your words that will make sense to somebody who does not have the kind of background that you have. And that's the kind of value that I can bring to a project. And that's why I think it's not important generally for a ghostwriter 
you know, to have a deep sort of, you know, knowledge of whatever the topic is. They just have to be able to be able to think on their feet enough to get the information, synthesize it in such a way and put it on the page in the person's voice. Listen, I make it sound so easy, right? It's not that easy. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it's a weird collection of skills that you have to have to be able to do this work. Right. And, you know, it's interesting, too, because there's there's that. And I mean, the other thing, you know, and I think people are much more kind of sanguine about this, but I don't know. I, I was when I was doing more writing. At one point, I was working with a kind of legendary editor named Herman Golub, uh, and people would say, you know, he basically wrote Shogun, um, and uh, and and it's same thing, you know, per- Maxwell Perkins and Tom Wolfe. There's there's a sense that editors can, in fact, intrude so um, significantly. Uh, in the process that they become collaborators with their writers. But I don't know that writers are necessarily as uncomfortable with that or accredited writers are as uncomfortable with that as as maybe some people might be having it be known that they had, you know, a a collaborative writer. Am I making any sense in terms of that distinction? Yeah. And, you know, I like, you know, like anything else, different editors are involved to different degrees. I guess like sort of famously Raymond Carver's editor did so much on his stories that they didn't really resemble the original stories that Raymond Carver wrote. And then now, but Raymond Carver is taught and read for, you know, decades after he's, he's no longer with us, you know? So, I mean, it, it just varies, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's not a science, it's an art. It's, there's, there's every possible permutation and iteration of collaboration that can exist between an author or a collaborator or a ghostwriter or an editor. Sometimes even agents get somewhat involved, you know? It's just all a question of how do you put the best product on the page? And sometimes people will have different ideas about that, but it's a, you know, like any collaborative effort, you know, some people, you know, write movies together and make movies together and have an awful time of it. And then they're like, well, that's a great movie, but that, like that whole experience was terrible. And then others have a really great time doing it. It's just, it's like any other artistic endeavor, really. Right. In fact, we did a show yesterday about Our Town in which I discovered that Thornton Wilder and the original director of Our Town fought like cats and dogs all the way through. And that director believed that he actually should have had a shared writing credit. He did, yeah. in his opinion, so much to, to shape the material. So, yeah, yeah. Th- it is. I mean, th- we have this myth. We have a myth of Raymond Carter, Carver as this writer, right? And this writer, he writes these things, and they're so incredibly powerful, and he does it, right. you know, the, and the things seem kind of, the, the, the short stories seem lonely, so you assume he must be doing it alone, and then, <laughs> Edward, Nor- then Edward Norton yeah. leaves his superhero job to make a play based on, you know. But anyway, I mean, the, the truth is, as you say, it is much, much more collaborative. So I have to ask the other question, which is, how do you make decisions about time, finding time for you, you the writer? Uh, you you've written your own books. I feel like you uh, are going to write other books based solely on your own confession that for nine glorious months you were a lounge singer <laughs> in Japan. I would like yeah. to read that book when you write it. Uh, yeah. But yeah, how do you how do you sort of figure that out? I mean, I'm guessing you know, some of these projects that you get involved with are pretty lucrative, but you also want to answer to your own muse at some point. Yeah, no, it's really true. I I mean, I was very happy to, you know, do my book Bears in the Streets, which I I wrote and had published, you know, 
16 or 17 years into my ghostwriting career. And funnily enough, I had to sort of learn like, what is my voice now? Like I've been working so long on working with other people that, you know, that's actually how I got into doing stage storytelling at the Moth. I took, I took a storytelling class actually um, in, in Los Angeles most of the time when I took a storytelling class. So I was like, well, who am I and what is my voice? And that was a really fascinating process to try to figure that out. Like, how do I write as myself? But I really enjoy writing as myself. I do intend to do more books and I would like to do more books. But one of the things that's really appealing about doing the work that I do with people like some of the ones you mentioned, and I worked with Patrick Swayze on his book. And, you know, these books get into the hands of a lot of people. You know, these books make a difference in people's lives. And for me, that's like, that's the holy grail. That's why I do it. I, I want to work on books that make a difference, that fill in a piece of history or that tell you something that you didn't know even about yourself, you know, that help you sort of connect with some part of yourself. So that part of it is just super, super fulfilling. And that um, that's why I do it. But yeah, at some point I should definitely write about that. Uh, it was a French <laughs> restaurant in Japan, the Brasserie Ichimanji. And I was, I was a lounge singer there in the early 90s. It was, it was a rather hilarious time. I, I, wa I want to know all about that. So I definitely <laughs> write it. So uh, we have to uh, transition here. But um, but my dog, Declan, is very excited that I'm talking to you. He's got a memoir he's been working on. He's stuck with this whole chapter where they cut down a tree that he really liked. And it was very traumatic. So uh, he said, get me Lisa Dickey. Tell, Lisa, De tell Declan to hit me up. You know, yes, like, absolutely. Yeah. He'll, right, he'll cool. <laughs> once the pandemic is over, he'll do lunch with you. Lisa <laughs> Dick Dickey is a book collaborator, ghostwriter for 20 books, nine of which became New York Times bestseller. Also the author of Bears in the Streets, Three Journeys Across a Changing Russia. Russia, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Colin. This was fun. All right. So uh, coming up in the next segment, uh, there's sort of like almost, I don't know how to describe it, but kind of a, a supermarket almost for uh, writers who want to do this kind of work and for people who need that kind of writer. We'll explain more on the other side. All right, uh, we are back, uh, and uh, this I didn't fix it, did I, Kat? We're trying to fix a little volume problem here, but we'll, we'll have to do that at some other point. So, um, yeah, so, by the way, I think the barking was, if you read my newsletter, uh, you know that I'm waiting for a, oh, it's, now it's low, hold on. We're going to try to fix this in real time right here. So, uh, <laughs> Uh, if you read my newsletter, you know that I'm waiting for a toilet flapper, like the little thing that flaps down over the hole inside the toilet tank. I think it might have come. I think that's what the barking was like. Is it better now, Cap? Um, still low. Okay, come on. We're going to bring it up. going to bring it up. All right. See, you're hearing you know, the fourth wall come right down here. Uh, now it's perfect. Okay. So um, now... And, and this is exciting for me because, first of all, I haven't talked to this guy in a, in a while. And, and it's exciting for me for other reasons, too, which will maybe explain. Dan Gerstein uh, is the founder and CEO of Gotham Ghostwriters. He was a speechwriter and communications director for former U.S. Senator Joe Lieberman. Uh, and I'm laughing because she was talking before in the first segment about writing jokes 
for for politicians who were doing like sort of White House correspondence dinner. And I think Dan actually roped me into trying to write a joke for Lieberman, which I doubt he used. Anyway, he's been contributing a columnist to several publications, including Forbes and Politico, graduate of Conard High School, alumnus of the Hartford Current, uh, and yes, founder and CEO of Gotham Ghostwriters. So welcome to the show, Dan. Hi, Colin. Great to talk to you again. That's right. right? Didn't, weren't we like trying? Wasn't I like on a conference call? Do you remember this for some Lieberman thing where he needed jokes? I can't even yes, believe you, it. Yes, we actually used one of your jokes. It was for the 2001 Gridiron Dinner. I can't believe I agreed to do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Powers of persuasion. I would never do that today. All right. So Gotham Ghostwriters, first of all, how long has it been around? I feel like I was like among the first people to be getting the regular Gotham Ghostwriters emails and newsletters or whatever. But how long ago if, did that all start? If you carbon date us, uh, it's was I launched it as an experiment in 2008, and for the first several years, I was kind of doing it part time, uh, while I was continuing to do political consulting and commentary and kind of figure out what the heck I was doing. You know, I'm a total accidental entrepreneur, and I was developing a business model that really didn't exist. Um, so there was a lot of trial and error, more error than trial. Um, and then about five years ago, I really kind of felt like that it was taking off, and I stopped my other consulting work and been doing it full time since then. So just to give people kind of a sense here, uh, the, the the queries range from we are looking for a developmental editor to work with a client on her memoir about her lifelong search for her biological father. We are looking for a writer to work on an action packed fantasy novel with a prolific sci fi fantasy author. We are looking for uh, an experienced speechwriter to work with a college president on a contract basis. Uh, th these are a lot of different kinds of things. I, I don't know what it was like at first, but there are a lot of things that fall into that category. Yeah, we work with a lot of different kinds of clients from like, you know, Fortune 100 CEO and the kind of celebrities and public figures that Lisa writes with um, uh, all the way down to, you know, um, uh, families that have run small businesses and they want to document the history of their business. Um, and it really runs the gamut. I would say at this point in our evolution, 80 to 90% of the work we're doing is around books. But like, you know, Lisa pointed out the the term ghostwriting and ghostwriter really is an umbrella term that covers lots of different kinds of forms of collaboration. Um, so some cases it's full on ghostwriting. Some cases it's like, you know, co uh, a collaborating where the author and the writer share the writer. Sometimes it's a book doctor or a developmental editor. It all depends on sort of what the author's needs are. And that's one of the things that our agency is a resource for is because we have such a large diverse network of writers and editors that we're in a position to kind of custom match, um, uh, talent with need, um, and find the right solution for what the author is looking for. All right. So I, I should, by the way, I, so since I've been getting all of the emails since the beginning, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure that's like thousands of emails, literally thousands of emails at this point. That's true. But, and I think I might, I may have noticed occasionally, correct me if I'm wrong, that I'll, so I'll see a pitch that's something like one of the ones that I just read. And then two or three months will go by and I'll see that same pitch again. And I always assume that meant that it was sort of a marriage that didn't quite click that you, you 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 and your client might have thought you'd found the right writer and then not so much yeah that does occasionally happen um and um more often than not um, we do a lot of work in upfront and screening writers listening to the clients um you know it's very much like like uh, lisa pointed out it's it's like a romantic relationship um and dating and we play the role of matchmaker so we're trying to figure out how the the two people will fit together and when it doesn't work, a lot of times it's because the client or author 
really doesn't invest the time into actually talking to the writers we recommend and will you know be dazzled by someone's resume but not think about the chemistry component um and that's more often than not when things go sour yeah could you say a little bit more about either what has to be right or what has to be wrong about that conversation all right so you want them to look past the resume have some conversations about this uh what's your approach what's my approach i don't know are there more specific things that either make it work or not work um it is a very intimate relationship, right? So if, you know, some of these public figures that Lisa has worked with are a good example, they're trusting her with some, you know, things from their life that um, is very dear to them. And the book they're producing is going to be, you know, their story into the world. And so they have to trust the collaborator they're working with. So that trust foundation is the most important component at the beginning of the relationship. And if that's there 99% of the time, it's going to work out. And I think, you know, that's one of the things we do up front in trying to educate the clients we're working with is how important that trust and comfort level is. And to, to you know, obviously skill, experience are relevant, and that's got to factor in, but you have to feel confident in and comfortable with the person you're going to work with. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's work style, right? So like, if some, if, if you have a ghostwriter who tends to have a process that's you know, very formal or rigid. Um, that might work for some of their clients that, you know, want to be directed, but then there's other people that's not a good uh, fit. And so thinking through questions like that uh, are, are important at the beginning of the process. So if you want to hear what it's like when one of these relationships isn't going well, um, here's a clip from the recent movie Mank, which we've talked about extensively on this show. Uh, it's directed by David Fincher, and it's the story of, or a version of a story of screenwriter Herman Mankiewicz, uh, played by uh, Gary Oldman. Here he is, uh, drunk, not unusually, uh, at uh, after crashing a party at the Hearst Mansion San Simeon. Now, along comes Nemesis. That's Greek for any guy in a black hat. Nemesis runs for governor, and he's a sure to win. Why? Because he's exactly what our Don used to be. An idealist, you get it? And not only that, Nemesis is the same guy who once predicted that our Coyote would one day preside over a socialist revolution. Our Coyote looks into the mirror of his youth and decides to break this glass. The maddening reminder of who he once was, assisted by his faithful Sancho. Ah, with all the black magic at his command, he does just this, destroying in the process not one man, but two. So a lot of pain there. And, and some of the movie, uh, we should say, involves um, his work on Citizen Kane and the question of whether he's going to get credit for it. Um, but, you know, there is, I, Dan, I think, you know, even though uh, more and more ghostwriters, collaborators are kind of openly celebrated. And, and yes, I mean, now it's it's clear also some of the big franchise writers like like 
Tom Clancy or James Patterson. Or I mean, they're not writing. In fact, I would be more likely to buy a book by James Patterson if I could be assured that he didn't write it. Uh, Wilbur Smith. <laughs> it's um, pretty sure he didn't write it. He has yeah. a whole factory of writers set up. Right. But there's also still kind of a stigma, right? There's there are, are you're going to have people in your life who are going, well, why aren't you writing your own books? Why, why are you know, why are you writing this guy's book? Yeah, I would say technically you're correct. There's a stigma in some quarters, but it's uh, melting away um, uh, more and more uh, for for a few reasons. One is, you know, the Internet has created this, you know, uh, expectation that we know everything. Right. There's no secrets. There's there's no everything's transparent. Right. So um, we know who Obama's speechwriter was, this guy, John Favreau, and in, in, in short order, he became a celebrity. Um, and, uh, and as that's happened, I think, you know, they, most people, it's just become very normal um, and, you know, uh, common knowledge that politicians use speechwriters, CEOs and celebrities use ghostwriters. Um, and so that idea that it's, you know, you're somehow cheating or you're claiming something that isn't your own, that, that really, uh, has largely dissipated. I would say the one quarter where it still, um, exists is among very snobby literary writers, <laughs> um, who that idea of it being hackery, um, has survived, uh, over time. I, you know, I want to go back to what you were mentioning about speechwriters, because I think, and you would be very close to this topic in, in a whole bunch of different ways, that uh, I grant everything that you say, and it's certainly not hidden that, you know, that pretty much 99% of Ronald Reagan's moments of eloquence were written by Peggy Noonan, the famous challenger uh, tragedy response speech. speech was written from her. But there is, correct me if I'm wrong, I think there is sort of a code of honor or an unwritten code of ethics. Like Michael Gerson, who wrote a lot of terrific material for George W. Bush, including the soft bigotry of low expectations, which is just a terrific turn of phrase. He's been criticized for kind of I don't know, making sure he gets credit, being a little bit too insistent on everybody knowing that he gets credit. I mean, there's some kind of sense that, yeah, if 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 you get famous somehow for that, that's fine, but you shouldn't want it. Yeah, I think that is that among, there is a unwritten code um, among particularly among speechwriters, but also among book ghostwriters um, that. Uh, you know, the, the, the exact nature of your relationship with the, the client or author that you're working with, that stays between you. You know, the, the I think the title on your, uh, your, your, um, your website preview of this is you like, you know, what, what happens in the ghostwriter in the page stays with it. Um, and that, that is, that expectation is there, but more and more, um, it's become common practice in the industry for people to be able to say, I collaborated with so-and-so. So like, again, you look at Lisa's um, page uh, website, right? They list the books she's collaborated on. In some cases, she's credited as a co-author and or with. In some cases, she's an actual ghostwriter and she's not receiving cover credit. And I think more and more um, authors have no problem acknowledging that they had help with the book. I think the, the exceptions that tend to be um, people with fragile egos and who um, don't want anyone to think that they had help. Um, and, you know, but that pool of public figures is, is shrinking. Um, and as the gross writing field grows, I mean, there's uh, more and more demand for um, 
that kind of service to the point where very elite authors um, are actually now dabbling in ghostwriting. Like one of the best examples is a, a writer you may know, J.R. Moringer. Um, he collaborated with Andre Agassi on his autobiography, and, and that's considered one of the top memoirs probably the last 10, 20 years, and in large part because Moringer brought something special to it. And if you're a superstar collaborator slash ghostwriter, you can maybe make different demands. Doesn't Michelle Burford essentially require that her, her name be on the cover? Yep. Yeah. And, um, and that's, you know, that goes back to something you and Lisa talked about, you know, some, some writers, do they want to keep it a secret because they don't want anyone to know they, they wrote on the book that does happen. Um, but I think there is a whole universe of people who, um, really enjoy the ghostwriting or collaborative process because their name is not on the book. And therefore it's kind of liberating for them because they don't have that pressure. Their name's not attached to it. Um, and they really enjoy that. And, and, and I don't know if you can relate to this, but, you know, I, I'm a tortured writer. When I write myself, I really labor over it. Um, and it can be painful. Um, and I found a lot of times when, you know, whether I was writing speeches for Lieberman or sometimes helping other people, when my name wasn't on it, that pain wasn't the same. Um, and I think that's a, a part of the appeal for certain writers and why they go into ghostwriting. Yeah, actually, I think I'm kind of an all-purpose hack at this point. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I don't worry too much about whether I, I just want to get the check, you know. Um, so last question. So sometimes when I, and I haven't looked at all 7,000 emails that you've sent me over the years, but, um, you know, sometimes when I look at these things, I think, wow, I really want to read that book. Like, I really want to read the fantasy novel that's somewhat based on ancient Rome or something. I thought that, that looks like a really good book. I hope they get that done and I can read it. And then sometimes I think, oh no, somebody should talk them out of that project. They're going to spend, <laughs> they're going to spend $18,000 and they're going to have nothing to show for that. Um, I, but I, I take it you don't see that as, uh, as the CEO of, of Gotham Ghostwriters as your job to say, ah, you know, you should probably just actually just, you know, renovate your restaurant instead of uh, trying to write the, get somebody to write this book about you. You know, that's a really good question. And we, and we get that a fair amount. And um, I, I would say that if we were kind of pre-internet and traditional publishing remain this very insular closed loop uh, gated community, that that's where you had to kind of tell people you're probably barking up the wrong tree. You're not going to be able to get this book published and it'd be a waste of money to hire someone to work with you. But now with the explosion of self-publishing uh, platforms, the different ways that you can get a book out there and published um, for actually very little money, um, you know, we see our role as to sort of help people first set realistic expectations about what the market appeal for their story is and how they might be able to get it published. And then sort of say to them, if you value uh, good writing and you want, you know, we think we can help you tell your story better, then we're we're happy to work with them because we don't have that pressure of having to make the decision, this book's going to be able to sell. And for a lot of our clients, they, they self-publish and, and they're very happy because they have this, either this big idea uh, for a nonfiction book, they, they want it out there as a calling card for the business. And then we work with some people who have on the creative writing side who have a idea for the fantasy novel, just like you talked about, and it's burning inside them. It's a, maybe a bucket list thing. And they really just want a professional help them to put it out there in a way that they're going to be proud of. And in a case like that, there, we have no, not only no ethical issue, we feel really um, that we're doing a service in helping people be, because they can't do it on their own and they value the role that a writer will play. All right. So Dan Gersting uh, is the founder and CEO of Gotham Ghostwriters. Absolutely get in touch with him. Pitch him on your project. He'll find you a terrific writer. It probably won't be me. I haven't really taken 
<laughs> the initiative on any of these things. But you'll, he'll find you a really great writer. But, uh, but we do want to work with your dog, Colin. All right. Yeah, no, actually, Declan is sitting right here, and uh, he would like to take a meeting with you. Uh, all right, so we're going to take, take a little break here. When we come back, this is a very controversial subject, the idea of ghostwriting, and that term does get used in the world of hip-hop. And our favorite hip-hop guy is going to explain that to you. I've been working on my rewrite, that's right. I'm going to change the ending. Going to throw away my title and toss it in the trash. Every minute after midnight, all the time I'm spending. It's just for working on my rewrite, that's right. All right. So, um, first of all, we're back. Second of all, uh, I have people to thank here today. Cat Pastor's there in the studio, uh, and uh, is making everything sound great and uh, making it possible. She's, she's our technical producer. I should say that too. Uh, and uh, will be um, making it possible for us to work remotely. Although I'm coming back to the studio soon. Uh, it's just a matter of weeks now, and I'm, I'm excited about that. I haven't been in there since, well, literally a year ago. Um, so, uh, also, uh, Betsy Kaplan, senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, is the producer of this uh, episode, the person who uh, thought the whole thing up, too. Uh, and we're going to talk about the world of hip-hop right now. So, uh, before we introduce our guest here, he's been on the show many times, but not recently, which... That's not good. He should be on our show a lot more. Uh, but let's play a, a Kanye West tune, all right? So uh, this is a song called Champion. Uh, Kanye West, uh, obviously a great uh, rap auteur and somebody who's written stuff for other people. But uh, let's hear this song, Champion. Did you Yes, I did. So I packed it up and brought it back to the crib. Just a little something to show you how we live. Everybody doing it, but it ain't that serious. Yeah. That's that. So if you gon' do it, do it just like this. Did you realize that you are a champion? You don't see just how wild the crowd is. So uh, a rapper named Consequence uh, told MTV's Rap Fix uh, in 2011 that he, uh, in fact, wrote... Um, portions of that song. This is not an unusual phenomenon. Sometimes uh, it, it's a situation where the the writer gets credit. We, we can give some examples of that as we go along too. But um, but then sometimes not. Sometimes there's some real questions like, you know, who wrote this? And is this really your story? Joining us to explain it all, to break it down for us is Kaim, the rap poet, also known as Self Suffice, performs internationally, co-host of the Sound Minds podcast and leads Make It Full Time career uh, coaching for professional artists. Uh, his use, to, use of hip-hop to educate has resulted in an award from President Obama and recognition from the New York Times and NPR. That's probably us, actually, maybe. Uh, and uh, <laughs> other among other places. So welcome back to our airwaves, sir. What up, Colin? <laughs> it's been a long time, uh, and I'm glad to hear your voice, even though we can't uh, be it's, together. It's always a quantum leap. I always yeah. feel like I was just talking yesterday. <laughs> so... So you've done this, right? You you have, when called upon, uh, written material for for other rap artists. Yes, yes. I, I was telling Betsy I have done that, and I don't feel any conflict when I do it. Uh, there have been people who had an amazing story to tell, but didn't have the words to tell it. But isn't a rapper almost by definition the, somebody who has the words to tell it? Um, an MC. So I would say rap is a, an element of emceeing, 
you know, there's there's like 10 elements of hip hop culture, hip hop culture's principles, peace, love, unity and having fun. Right. Mm -hmm. But the elements are like DJing, MCing, breaking. These are all ways to attain and be motivated by peace, love, unity and having fun coming from a group of people who didn't have that in poverty in the South Bronx and the school arts programs being shut down, stuff like that. So it's not really just something you do. It's a way to achieve um, overcoming white supremacy, overcoming killing each other and killing people in your neighborhood through these things, right? So if you understand that context, yeah, it's by definition, you want to have pride in your story and tell your story if you're emceeing. But everyone who's doing rapping, which is just something that MCs do to attain these principles, right? Uh, rap, rap, I mean, I was telling Betsy, a lot of people just use the brand names you're associated with, the trends you're associated with, how much money you're making right now as a proxy for judging whether it's okay or not okay to do things. Um, but I will say one more thing before we, we go on. Yes, rapping and MCing is like, you know when you hear someone start to sing and from that first note, their vocal tone lets you know if you really, they have it or not? Mm -hmm. You know, like American Idol or Apollo. It's like, they go, you're kind of looking at them skeptically and they go, Wah! and everyone's like, oh, their voice. And then you just listen to the whole song. Well, that effectively in rapping is what we call conviction. If someone has something called conviction, believability, it sounds like they're telling their story, that's the equivalent of us, an R&B singer, right? Hitting that tone where you're like, oh, they really sing. If someone sounds like they really mean what they're saying, then we, we give them props in them singing and rap. So um, do you think that there is some kind of component to this uh, of judgment either based on the form of hip hop itself which may uh you know have some critics of the genre as a whole or based on race i mean for example drake has really been grilled about this whole question you know mm -hmm. uh, which is sort of interesting too because drake writes stuff for other artists there are drake songs that drake doesn't do uh That's but right. he, but he's really been put on the hot seat about this uh, do you feel like he's put on the hot seat in a way that maybe another kind of artist another race of artist might not be Drake is a perfect example because we all know that Drake is a singer and a rapper, right? Mm -hmm. And he does have knowledge of hip hop culture as well, even though he's like a, you would think that a lot of commercial successes uh, don't, he does have that knowledge. And you'll catch him um, referencing and quoting artists like Dead Prez, uh, Wu-Tang Clan, um, some of the legendary pioneers as well. I think that there is something that happens with black art forms and black artists right where again our whole country's history was that black people were bought and sold as property and there's this underlying notion that it's okay to punish black people so before we get into like the hip-hop purists and the rappers and do we like ghostwriting or not just you got it's important to keep it in that context right it's mm -hmm. never okay to take away someone's livelihood or murder or rape them or any of these heinous things um, because of what they do on a rap song, okay? We got to keep that in mind. It's not okay to, like, uh, dismiss people or cancel them or say them trash based on how much of their own songs they wrote. Right. Does that make so, sense? Yes. So uh, we're going to have to go but fast. Having not... said that, yeah. yes, Drake, anyone who's super successful in the art form is going to be held to a higher standard, right? So whether we find out, like, someone wrote his song or whether we find out someone like shared a bar with him, it's going to be heavily scrutinized because we're saying 
who is, this is what we're basically saying at a high level of who's the greatest MCs. Who stands up to critique of living their experience, writing about it, matching a beat, but also who is worthy to critique the next generation? And you might stand up to the critique of holding a note and performing something really well, but we want to know as a culture, when you're teaching the next generation, how can you critique that next kid coming up if you haven't done all those things? Right. So uh, just very quickly here, I mean, there are purists within the genre itself. Uh, here's uh, Kendrick uh, Lamar uh, actually specifically addressing this question in King Kunta. I can dig rapping. But a rapper with a ghost rider, but I'll for camping. Oh no! I swore I wouldn't tell. So, yeah, he says uh, yeah. a rapper with a ghostwriter. What the F is happening here? To him, yeah. rap is such a personal narrative, right? That how can there That's be somebody right. else doing that? So, yeah, maybe take a minute to talk about that. Yeah, I, th I think he is specifically referencing that, like, you know, he, J. Cole, and Drake, maybe one or two others, are in that spot where they're always being scrutinized and critiqued because they're, like, holding the, the, the popular view of what hip-hop is today on their shoulders. So he's like, look, I'm writing my stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm critiquable and I'm able to critique on all these levels. And if you're not doing this, then you're not able to be critiqued. Right. And that's just basically what it is. But then again, there are some confusions that come up. OK, so I, I, I want to touch on some of the confusions, which are. You know what? We can't do that. I, I want to. I want you to come back for a whole show. This this is not yes. enough time for us yeah, to yeah, yeah, talk yeah, about other yeah. stuff. Well, what, what I want to do, I want to go out with one of your uh, tunes because that uh, seems about like the right thing to do. So we're gonna just end here with "Aware" chapter twelve by our guest. Ooh, self I love it. All I right, it. and you'll be back very soon if I have anything to say about it. Me too. Thank you. I remember not knowing what my teachers were telling me, but it wasn't what they said, it was what I was ready to see. See, all of that struggle was to be prepared for the treasure in front of me, I ain't see what's there. Where you be when you see where I be? I'll be where.